that would encourage listeners to this, particularly in the house of worship community, is to talk with each other. Talk with folks that you identify who have done projects, certainly other houses of worship or developers who have worked with houses of worship. Welcome to Buzz House, a Baker Tilly podcast where you can hear all the buzz around multifamily housing. With all the info you need to help you win now and anticipate tomorrow. Hi, I'm Don Bernards, the partner in charge of Baker Tilly's multifamily housing practice. And I'm Gary Gibson, a partner at Baker Tilly, also specializing in consulting on multifamily housing transactions across the country. Let's get started. Today's episode of The Buzz House will focus on faith-based organizations and affordable housing. A HUD report from the early 2000s focused on this topic. Some statistics from that report note that taken together, congregations, denominational organizations, and other faith-based organizations represent the third largest component of the nonprofit sector in the United States after health and education. Congregations alone numbered around 350,000 at that time. We see and read about trends, especially exacerbated by COVID of lower attendance or church closings. This topic, of course, is not new, but is growing in focus and strategy, and very excited to have with us today to talk about leveraging property owned by faith-based organizations, our Reverend David Bowers and Tim Block of Enterprise. I'll now turn over to Garrick right now to jump into our conversation. Garrick? Thanks, Don, and thanks, David and Tim, for coming on BuzzHouse. Welcome to the show. Before we get into questions to begin, would you please tell us and our listeners a little bit about your professional background and enterprise? Sure, Garrick. Really appreciate you all having us here today. So David Bowers here. I've been at Enterprise for 19 years. Prior to coming to Enterprise, I had a career really in kind of public service where I was working on Capitol Hill for former Senator Barbara Mikulski, did some work at the CDFI Fund, Department of Treasury, and some work at the AFL-CIO Housing Investment Trust. And as indicated, been here for 19 years at Enterprise. And just a quick overview of Enterprise before turning it over to Tim, national organization really focused on making uh, home and communities places of pride, power, and belonging, really strategic goals around increasing affordable housing supply, expanding racial equity in the ecosystem, and also promoting upward economic mobility and resilience of both the built environment and of communities. And we do that really through three platforms. We provide capital, We have a solutions division that does a lot of programmatic and policy work. And we also have an owner-operator division, a communities division that operates nearly 12,000 affordable homes in the Mid-Atlantic region, providing housing for about 20,000 residents. So that's Enterprise in a nutshell. Maybe I'll turn it over to Tim. Thanks, David. Tim Block. I am a director of programs in our Southeast Market Office for Enterprise Community Partners. David said Enterprise has 11 market offices across the country. I'm based in Atlanta and covers the Southeast for Enterprise. Been with Enterprise about seven years now. Over that time, I've had the opportunity to lead a number of exciting initiatives, but none more proud that I am is of our faith-based development initiative. I lead that work in our Southeast Market Office and just really love engaging with Houses of Worship. And we say Houses of Worship because we'll work with any faith and denomination to help them understand the development process. So I've had extensive background in community development prior to Enterprise. I worked for the Home Depot Foundation, where I led their philanthropic grant making around affordable housing. I also worked for Habitat for Humanity, was executive director of the affiliate in Philadelphia. And prior to that, I was an executive director of several community development corporations in Cleveland, Ohio. Happy to be here and look forward to the conversation. 
Yeah, thanks for that. We're obviously happy to have you on. So let's get into the questions. Look, in the intro, Don touched a little on some trends, but David, could you let us know a little bit about the faith-based development initiatives that came into being at Enterprise? Absolutely. So back in 2006, we started the faith-based development initiative really out of a desire to what I call play offense in the affordable housing realm. I always tell people, if you watch sports, good defense, they say wins championships, but at some point you got to score. So in the affordable housing arena, we were playing so much defense, just trying to preserve the units that we have, which is critical. But we realized, particularly in the Washington, D.C. metro area where I first started here at Enterprise, it's such a high cost market that We need to get new units of affordable housing built. So I knew from my own personal background, myself and a former colleague of mine, Deborah Stevenson, we knew that a lot of affordable, a lot of houses of worship own a lot of land that's underutilized. Around the same time, we also connected with a professor at Georgetown University, Dr. Sam Marilla, who is doing research on church-owned land in in Washington, D.C., And one of our local nonprofit partners, East of the River Clergy Police Community Partnership, was starting to look at how to provide housing for returning citizens. So this convergence of all of us looking at things, we went up and talked to some of our colleagues in New York who were working at a transactional level with houses of worship who were doing affordable housing work in New York City. And putting all that together, doing some reflection, we we unveiled the Faith-Based Development Initiative in 2006 in our what is now our mid-Atlantic market, really focused in the Washington, D.C. metro originally. Our goal for the FBDI, as we like to call it, is how do we get new units of affordable housing, and to be clear, housing that serves in particular households making below 80% of area median income, housing and or community-serving facilities developed on underutilized land that Houses of Worship own, and our approach is to really help them make an informed go or no go decision about development. And if they decide to go forward, then to help them get connected to the right types of intellectual and financial capital, professionals, industry professionals, catalytic grant dollars that will help them move along the way. I know we'll talk more about that, but that was really the genesis of the FBDI. And and I like to say it's radical common sense, right? When you see there's so much need in our communities, Right. In terms of affordable housing, health care deserts, child care deserts, a lot of things that became crystal clear during COVID. And you're, you have these mission aligned entities who are sitting on so much underutilized land. So helping these folks make the informed go, no go decision is really connecting opportunity with need. Perfect. Thank you very much for that overview, uh, David. And maybe a question for both of you, starting with back to you again, David. Day to day, you gave a little bit of what the Faith Based Development Initiative, but day to day, what are you doing? What are you focusing on? What are some of those outcomes? Um, and then maybe you touched on a little bit in, in geography. I think people are going to be very interested in this. What geographies are you currently in and so forth? So maybe, David, I'll, I'll start with you on that. Sure. Thanks, Don. Appreciate it. So let me actually pick up on the geographies piece. It's interesting that now we've got, mul- we've been fortunate enough to get support from the Wells Fargo Foundation that really helped us with doing a five-year, multi-year cohort. That was the foundational funding. We have other funders as well who are involved, but they really helped us with a foundational $8.5 million investment through two grants that helps us. So now we have multi-year cohorts running in Atlanta, Baltimore City, also in uh, Miami, South Florida, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., we also have some, so essentially those are five-year, multi-year cohorts going. We also have some cohorts that have, have started now getting ready to kick off in Prince George's County, Maryland, with some other funding from Bank of America, the Greater Washington Community Foundation, and the local county itself providing dollars. The district government in Washington, D.C. is providing dollars there. 
So it's interesting to get support from multiple players with these cohorts. We also have some work that's going on, not multi-year funded cohorts, but work going on in places like Detroit, Denver, and the Gulf Coast, looking at New Orleans and, and also places in Texas. So for us day to day, it really is this notion on how do we provide that intellectual and financial capital dollars and cents with an S, as I like to call it, the technical types of support that these houses of worship need to make their way through. And I think I'll turn over to Tim to let him talk a little more in detail about what that looks like on the ground day to day. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, we're knee deep in running a cohort program, both in Atlanta and South Florida, like David mentioned. And what that looks like is we actually created a national curriculum that walks houses of worship through the entire development process from start to finish. It's a six and a half to seven month process that is 13 sessions led by a trainer. And what we like to say is that we're exposing them to the development process, but we're not trying to make them experts. Dave and I have been doing this for years, and I don't think we either of us feel like we're experts. But what we're trying to do is to make them comfortably conversant in the development process so that nine times out of 10, they're going to have a development partner come alongside them. We want them to be able to engage with that potential development partner and not feel like they're going to get taken advantage of, that they feel like they are more empowered, they can talk the language, and they understand concepts. And we do that. And after they complete the curriculum portion of it, we have additional financial resources that we bring to bear. So we have these pass-through grants that we provide to each of the House of Worship participating in the cohort program. They have access to use those grant dollars to do feasibility analysis, early market studies, so that they can, again, understand if there's a there there for the particular project. And if there is a there there, then we also provide them additional grant dollars so that they can do additional early pre-development activities, whether it's doing environmental studies, zoning analysis, whatever it is to continue to move their project forward. So that's the work that we're doing on a day-to-day. I think another critical part of what we provide with our faith-based development initiative is the pairing of them with a development consultant. So each cohort participant, each house of worship has uh, the ability to work with a development consultant one-on-one over a period of time. They help them continue to think through the steps they need to take to make their projects come to fruition. And that's very critical when they don't know what to, don't know where to turn. So that comprises our cohort work. And then we're not able right now to get everybody into a cohort. So we have other tools and resources that we make available to them that are online tools. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit later, but that's what the work looks like day to day on the ground, helping houses of worship. And David has a good phrase. I don't think I can recall it, but help them go from vision to. (laughs) That's right. Vision to to construction, to completion and and really help them understand that. And Don and Garrick, I'll just say one more thing to add to what Tim mentioned about being comfortably conversant. I'm an ordained minister and I went to seminary, Howard University, School of Divinity, proud graduate there. And I always tell folks, look, I took Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology. I took Greek or Greek maybe took me even took a course on on how to literally counsel people who are dying. But what I did not take in seminary, what they did not offer at the time, was a course on things like running a pro forma or land disposition deals, right, agreements, how to negotiate with bankers, right, or developers. You just That's not part of that curriculum. And so the, these, the clergy leaders, lay leaders in many houses of worship are sitting on tremendous resource in terms of real estate 
But oftentimes, unless that happened to be their own professional background, they really aren't equipped professionally, if you would, to understand how to move in this space. And that's not a criticism. It just is what it is. And so uh, being able to provide this suite of resources to to clergy leaders, to lay leadership, again, we really emphasize that helping them make that informed go, no go decision, getting the right team around them, the real estate lawyer who's just on their side of the table, the development consultant that Tim talked about is critical to help them be good and faithful stewards. Very good. Thank you both for that. I, I wrote down comfortably conversant and, and the vision to, to construction and things like that. So some keywords. Uh, maybe a question for both of you again, talking about, I know we can, people can definitely go to your website and so forth, but are there case studies, things online so people can, again, further, more concretely see the program, success stories, things of that nature? Let me start with David. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate that question. There are people go to enterprise community, one word, .org, enterprise community.org, and just put in faith-based development initiative, and it'll bring you to our FBDI page. And there's some good resources there. We are proud that we just launched recently our faith-based development guide that is targeted to houses of worship. So houses of worship can go into that guide, put in some information, answer some questions about who they are and what they're thinking about doing. And they will receive a lesson plan that really about an eight to 10 page lesson plan that outlines some key steps in the development process based on the type of development they're trying to do. Are they doing ownership or new construction rental, depending on facilities, mixed use? So it'll give them that. And Don, that includes also in that lesson plan, some case study for that type of project. That's there. They also get access then once they get approved to a a resource library that has some uh, very specific tools and documents that can be helpful. There's also a white paper that was done that's on the website that anyone can access. Leveraging property owned by faith-based organizations is on the website. And so that's a, a basic primer that we think is can be helpful for folks. And a series that, that Tim led with a great name, Feeding Faith Leaders with Community Fervor, a webinar series that's on the website as well. So there's different there are different resources from a kind of case study insights from professionals who you can hear talking on a webinar to the written case studies that are there for houses of worship through the guide that are there as resources. And we're continuing to look for additional resources that other players in the ecosystem are putting together that we can point for folks towards. Yeah, and I can add to that, Don, one specific example of a real-time engagement that we have is, and I think David might have mentioned it earlier, is the Collective Empowerment Group of South Florida. They're a collection of 50 houses of worship in South Florida. They've come together to really tackle community development and economic development in their communities. And we've been working with them for about five years now to really help them build their capacity. The Miami-Dade County donated some lots to them, some vacant lots to them to do potential development on. And they spent their wills for a while. And so we were asked to come in and help them figure out how they could could move the needle. And we've been working with them to get them to the place where they have closed on five single family homes homes in South Florida. They have another 18 in their pipeline, and then they have a larger 53-unit micro condo uh, project that they're working on. That's a real-life case study that we're working hand-in-hand with them. We have them in our South Florida cohort as a participant, and um, we've really been able to build their capacity. And that's similar how we work with these houses of worship, is that we're really trying to get them the resources, the education, and the tools that they need to tackle something that you know, it's difficult even if you have years of experience. But if, like David said, if you're not taught that, if that's not what you do on a day-to-day basis, you need that support. You need that help. 
And Don, if I may, and Garrick, you asked about case studies. One of the things I would encourage listeners to this, particularly in the House of Worship community, is to talk with each other. Talk with folks that you identify who have done projects, certainly other houses of worship or developers who have worked with houses of worship. One of the components of our effort is what we call the Iron Sharpens Iron, and it's a peer sharing exchange for senior clergy where they can share one with another. We call it one of my favorite movies, right? The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Clint Eastwood, right? Just share the good, the bad, and the ugly. Who's been helpful? Who's not? What did it go to window two, not window four when you go down to permitting? This banker's been helpful. This one's not. Sharing real life examples. Uh, how long does it take to get buy-in from your congregation? How do you need to engage with community? Things like that. So we've brought from a kind of th- the ability to share information with each other in our local jur- uh, regional cohorts. Uh, is a, a key component, we think, of people learning in real time from each other. Sometimes they're hearing from people who have completed projects. Sometimes they're hearing oftentimes from each other who are I- in real time working on projects. Now, um, when we do our annual faith-based development summit, which because of COVID went virtual, so that's a free uh, offering that'll this year be on November 9th. But People, we bring folks who can share information that's really like real time case studies to the table that people can learn from and hear about what have been the approaches, what works, what doesn't work, and what do people need to do to put in place to help them have more likelihood of success. And that sounds like a great resource. And with that, I'd like to get maybe some more detail within the partnering, right? So Tim, in your work, are you seeing faith-based organizations partnering in the developing, leasing land, or or actually even selling, or all of the above, really? Yeah, absolutely, Gary. All of the above, I think. And, And one of the things that we teach in our curriculum is that there's not one right approach. It's what approach gets you to what you have envisioned uh, for your project. So that might um, entail, like I said, nine times out of 10, most houses of worship are going to partner with a development partner that has uh, more expertise, that has resources to to be able to fill that performing that capital stack so that they can get the project done. But then as they get more savvy, they might want to have more more involvement in the development process and share those developer fees. But we've also seen where home ownership and selling homes is important to House of the Worship. I mentioned CEG. Those uh, lots that they're building on are all single family homes that they're uh, providing to low income uh, families to move into because they feel like a way to build wealth is through home ownership. So you have a, a set of houses of worship to believe that is what they're being called to do. And then there is leasing models. There's the community land trust where we provide that as an option if they want to maintain control of the land and, and, and then ensure that those homes stay affordable in perpetuity, that's a model that they could pursue. So we're seeing all kind of different innovative approaches to houses of worship, bringing affordable housing unit and or community facilities onto, onto the landscape and also helping to address the affordable housing crisis across the country. And David, I don't know if you want to add to, to that as well. One thing I would add, Garrick and and Tim, to that is is that, and Tim said a key point of what is it that, what is the vision of the house of worship, right? At the end of the day, there's this balancing the need of the vision of the house of worship, but also what does the community need, right, and community want. And I'll say this now, this comment directed to listeners, particularly who may be developers who are listening, which is understand the importance of 
respecting and honoring the house of worship's desires as it relates to the land and to the faith community to say, you may have a vision, and, and I'm being high flip here, for a donut shop, but if the community doesn't need a donut shop, doesn't want a donut shop, you can't run it, that's, then there's a disconnect. So both the faith community has to be clear about what the needs are in the marketplace, and developers who are working with faith community need to respect and honor what it is that the faith community, uh, the house of worship, is trying to do and, and develop so that there can be a good, respectful synergy between both the house of worship, the development team, and the community that work, because it's not happening in a vacuum. It's happening in the context of a community and folks who live there and the needs that exist. Yeah, thanks for that. And I'd, I'd start with you, Dave. I'd like to also shift gears a little bit here since we have you on. On our podcast, we have discussed racial equity and programs centered around housing in this topic. And I know Enterprise has similar programs around this and tracking these types of impacts. So, David, is there a tie-in or do you integrate this racial equity programming into the actual face-based development initiatives you have? Yeah, I appreciate that question, Garrick. The answer is yes, and it's it. there are multiple layers to this. Um, so one, <clears throat> we, as Tim said at the beginning, we say houses of worship, not just churches. Folks from any religious background can participate. The reality is that we've seen probably about 80% of the participants have tended to be predominantly Black congregations, right? And again, we are, we're open to anyone. but that, So there's that angle to it, just in terms of who tends to come out and, and desire to get involved. So there's that. A second thing is there are vendors that Enterprise works with, the development consultants that we may engage, the trainers that we use uh, and the like. And so there's an intentionality that we have to try to uh, make sure we're very actively recruiting BIPOC vendors, that they're made aware of the opportunities to respond to RFPs that we may have, for example, for things like development consultants, trainers, and the like. And we've had very good results there. Another angle here is that we share with our houses of worship in the training that Tim described earlier, that 20-hour curriculum, we talk about in a very direct way in that training, equity, racial equity, and that there can be multiple types of goals that a house of worship has. So if a house of worship says, hey, look, we want to build senior housing, that's great. If they don't do anything else, build senior housing, if that's needed in the community, that's wonderful, period. Next sentence. They also may think about, hey, do you have racial equity and, and economic development goals that may come? So if you have a $30 million total development cost project, that means that there's $30 million that are pouring into the local economy, into businesses, into vendors. And we always say to people on any of these projects, an affordable housing, a community facility, a mixed use project, there are a lot of people, a lot of companies that are getting paid. And that ranges from everything from the caterer to the landscaper, to the title company, to the general contractor, the developer, et cetera. There are a lot of folks. And then once the project is open, who's operating the building? So if people have an interest, the House of Worship has an interest, we tell them, be thoughtful about that if that's something you care about as the influence you have as the partner with your development partner, even in who you select and how you make sure you're building that into your selection process for a development partner. But even then, 
in that collaboration, being intentional. So we do training and teaching about that for the folks who are there um, at the table. And then maybe I'll ask Tim to say a word even about our Equitable Path Forward program with BIPOC developers and how they're working that in the Southeast office. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the reason why this is so important to enterprise is that in our last strategic plan, racial equity was identified as one of the three pillars that kind of undergird that plan. So we, we have it running throughout the things that we do within the organization and coming up with innovative ideas and approaches to address it is um, what we're trying to do. So the Equal Path Forward Initiative is an initiative that Enterprise launched to level the playing field with BIPOC-led developers that allows them to be able to access resources that some of their white counterparts have a better have better access to, lines of credit, balance sheets. So we've created a program where we're providing small, large lines of credit to BIPOC developers to help them grow their businesses. They're unsecured. They can use it for administrative costs. They can use it for acquisition. They can use whatever they need to, again, be able to compete and be able to be more nimble and grow their businesses. And we are in the Southeast working with, I think, six organizations that we've been able to provide funding to. And they're using that to, to really have impact in growing their businesses. Another component to that is some technical assistance. So we're providing them grant dollars to address specific needs that they have within their organization that might be a stumbling block for them. So that's another tool that we have that, again, is just really trying to address some of the inequities and some of the unfairness that has historically happened throughout the years. I do want to put a fine point on what David said earlier about our consultants that we work with. So we have 10 consultants that we just engaged with to work individually with our house of the worship. And we were very intentional about the application process, the RQ that they had to uh, complete for us to vet them. And I'm happy to say that of the 10, seven are BIPOC organizations. Again, I just think we're creating the atmosphere and the, the culture to continue to support people that really want to make a difference and have impact. And one more thing I'll just add to that, that, for example, with the equitable path forward with the developers and with our FBDI work, part of the work that we do with FBDI is really training on, I, used, I tell people it's like my old math teacher used to say in grade school, right, you got to show your work right? You got to show your work. So for us, it's really important that we teach about the process that people should use. And part of that is making, we always tell people, shop for your partners, shop for your money, shop for your development partner, et cetera. So Garrett, to your question about the racial equity, okay, if one side of enterprise is working with, in an intentional way, BIPOC developers, one of the things we do is say, hey, to the houses of worship, we, you know, put an RFP out for your developers. Don't just go with the one person, put an RFP out, have the criteria of what you're looking for, et cetera. We'll make sure we'll be intentional so that they will know their selection team will know, hey, when you send the RFP out, here go some BIPOC developers that we're working with. If they're the types who are doing the kind of work you're looking for, making sure that those folks can be on the list of uh, folk candidates who get the RFP. And if they want to respond, they can. So we're, there's intentionality in making connection between the BIPOC developers that we're working with kind of in one part of the programmatic work of enterprise and the capital work of enterprise and this part with the FBDI so that people are aware, connecting dots so people become aware of each other. Perfect. A lot of good information pulling it all together. David, you hit on this a little bit, right? It's not in a vacuum. It's not just a faith-based group. But the question is, what can the role of the private sector, public sector stakeholders play in supporting these faith-based development initiatives? 
Yeah, Don, appreciate that question. And we really want to, the role that public and private sector can play is at a high level, what I like to call building it into the code, right? So that it's not a one-off thing, that what we want to do, part of our, we talk about trying to build a program while nurturing a movement. We're trying to build an enterprise program while nurturing a national movement that includes, but is much larger than enterprise. And what that really means is we want there to be a day where anyone who's in the affordable housing and community development ecosystem just assumes that houses of worship are one of the key stakeholders. Doesn't mean every house of worship is going to be doing this work, but in the same way you'd say, of course, there's going to be a financial institution that we need to be talking to. Of course, there's going to be a local or state government that's a part of this. Of course, there's going to be the development industry. We should also be thinking, of course, we, we should be engaging the faith community as potential partners. And so let me break that down one more level, which is so for the faith community, we want in not only individual congregations, but particularly at the denominational level, regional and national, to have the, uh, faith-based entities and institutions thinking, what more could we do with our land to meet some of our missional goals? We have a good example of this, something called Seek the City to Come, the Archdiocese, the Catholic Archdiocese in Baltimore City, for example, they've got it online. They're going through a very comprehensive process looking at 61 campuses they have across Baltimore City and some in Baltimore County. We, there's some national denominations who are really looking at this. The Church of God in Christ, for example, they're looking at how can they be very intentional so that's part of we need the faith community to think about whether it's putting in the time, talent and treasure to be intentional about thinking of highest and best use and not just from a developer standpoint, but from a missional standpoint to use the land. We need there's a need for dollars, the kind of work that enterprise is doing here. Other organizations are doing what we call this backboning of the technical assistance uh, suite of resources that are provided groups around the country. We need money to do this kind of work, right? And so not only pay for the time of staff who are putting all this together, but to provide those grant dollars, right? To provide the, the development consultants, et cetera, the trainings. And so local governments, we have examples of that in Prince George's County, Maryland, again, and in Washington, D.C., Alameda County, California, where local governments have put dollars into the backboning piece as well as, again, I mentioned some of the philanthropic organizations earlier who put in dollars, be it Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Trinity Church, Wall Street, different organizations around the country who are putting in money. So so there's money for the backboning. Then obviously there's money for the actual capital projects themselves. Local and state governments should be thinking, hey, should we be giving some sort of subsidy dollars targeted, right? These projects oftentimes are going to need some sort of subsidy to make the deals work. So is there a way to target that money, give extra points, whatever it may be for a house of worship kind of faith-based projects. And the last thing I'll mention is that from a land use policy standpoint as well, local and state governments can be intentional about what kind of land use policies might we put in place that incentivize or other policies around expedited permitting, right? We've seen things like in the state of Washington and, and the city of Seattle have done things around density bonuses for faith-based projects. The city of Miami, Tim alluded to earlier, Miami-Dade County, right, with actual land, right, disposing of land. 
So thinking, I think, government in terms of uh, policies and dollars, philanthropy and private industry, thinking about, again, the technical as well as financial resources that can go in to help with the backboning and the like, and denominations thinking like we're going to intentionally come to the table and think about at least consider it in a thoughtful way to make that go, no go decision. A lot of good uh, ideas and, and thoughts there as well. But really just one last question, and I'll start with you, Tim. Um, if I'm a faith-based organization, when do I reach out to you to enterprise? How do I win? When is that? What is that moment? I'm sure it's various times, but what have you seen? What's a good suggestion? So I, I'm going to make it hard on us, and David may not like it, but a house of worship, they can reach out to us uh, immediately. Whenever they feel like they have a question, that's what our job is, that's what our task is. Um, we have a process in the Southeast Market Office, so if you reach out and you contact us about having a conversation, we ask you to fill out a intake form that allows us to get your contact information, some initial thoughts on what you have in mind for your project. And then what that allows us to do is when we have that first conversation, know what questions to ask to be able to identify what resources we have available, whether it's our cohort program, whether it's the faith-based guide that David mentioned earlier, whether it's we all markets that are pursuing this are trying to create these bullpens, which are a list of professionals that can aid in helping a house of worship continue on their journey, if it's plugging them into that list or whatever. So I think we can help wherever they are. I think as far as practical, if they are a little bit further along, then we know exactly how to help them. Where we struggle is if they're still in the discernment process and they're trying to figure out what they should do, then that might take a little bit more time, a little bit more cultivation. But at any point that they're ready, they can reach out to us and we have something that can help them along their journey. And I would add to that, Don, it's interesting that Tim is spot on in terms of definitely encourage folks to check out that website again, enterprisecommunity.org the faith-based guide, which can help folks early in the process, particularly if you're not in one of our regions where we have a market office that can provide more hand-holding, if you would, and, and walking with folks. People can use, houses of worship can use that. Where we have markets that are running these cohorts is exactly what Tim said. I, I would also add that for, with want to build on that discernment piece, houses of worship that know that they are wanting to explore development, that's, real, that's enterprise's wheelhouse, right? The real estate development. We have found more and more houses of worship who are in that early discernment stage. It's what I call the, what is God calling us to be in this next iteration of, of our life, right? If they are at that point, that's not our expertise at Enterprise, but there are more and more professionals that we are, are working with, talking to, identifying, who are doing that kind of discerning work before they get to the real estate training and discerning piece. So there are folks like Mark Elsden and the Rooted Good team. He's the author of a book called We Aren't Broke. The United Church of Christ Church Building Loan Fund has a process where they help on the just the discerning piece before houses of worship even get to the real estate development piece. So if a house of worship is really at that, who should we be? Uh, Arlington Presbyterian Church, for example, has a website they created after their development process. They, they successfully developed a project. They created a website. It's a great offering that people can access just, again, about the discerning process. So for folks who are at houses of worship at that stage, there are be clear that there are tools and resources they'll want to use to really figure out what is God calling us to be. When they get to that point of saying, we think development is something we want to at least consider, 
then that's where the enterprise work and other groups who are doing similar type work really comes into play to help with the real estate development discernment and then the go, no go. And then if you're going forward, how do you get connected to all those professionals and, and, and financial resources you need to keep moving forward? But this is really, I'll just say this is, it's such important work, critical time. We talk about building a movement. We are excited, Don and Garrick, and even this podcast. The fact that this podcast is covering this topic is just an exciting example of how more and more folks seeing that radical common sense saying there's so much resource out there, so much land, airspace that can be utilized to meet these needs if we're just intentional about approaching this thoughtfully with integrity not trying to rob folks, not trying to get over on folks and and meeting real community need. There's opportunity to do a lot of good across the board. Very good. Thank you for so much information. That's it for today's episode of The Buzz House. A big thanks to Reverend David Bowers and Tim Block of Enterprise for joining the show today. Tell us about leveraging property owned by faith-based organizations. Once again, I'm Don Bernards. And I'm Garrett Gibson. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. For additional resources around multifamily housing, check out BakerTilly.com. If you have a suggestion for the show, email us at buildabakertilly.com. That's B-U-I-L-D at BakerTilly.com. See you next time on BuzzHouse. House.